0: Set in the West Midlands County of Staffordshire is a former royal forest called Cannock Chase. It is part misty, secluded woodland and part undulating moorland.
1: The landscape is crisscrossed with small hidden paths and some more famous ones, such as the Heart of England Way.
0: Although people are encroaching on the area, there is still much that is hidden here. And as you walk through the trees, you can often stumble across the impact of previous generations not yet fully taken back by nature.
1: An Iron Age hill fort, abandoned coal mines, even the remains of a First World War army camp can be stumbled across by lucky walkers.
0: As you head up to the north of this area of outstanding natural beauty, the landscape becomes tame. And you enter the Shugborough Estate some 10 kilometers to the east of the town of Stafford
1: the manicured landscape dominated by the stately home of Shugborough Hall is owned by the National Trust a charity that manages natural and constructed heritage sites across the country
0: people are gathering on the grassy lawn eating picnics walking dogs playing with children but something lies underneath
1: at either end of the estate there are two telltale structures tunnel portals constructed from well-dressed Ashler masonry.
0: A 700-metre-long brick-lined tunnel runs beneath the estate, built in the early to mid-1800s to take the Trent Valley Line, part of the West Coast Main Line, under the Shugborough estate.
1: And there is a risk posed by this hidden structure. And to make the site safer the visiting public and the still operational railway, it was a risk that called for the intervention with the latest tunnelling technology.
0: Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher
1: and I'm Ryan Owen.
0: In this episode we have partnered with the ground engineering company GeoBear to examine the work undertaken to make the Shugborough Tunnel safe for future generations.
1: We will learn about the growing understanding and use of geopolymers from a leading expert in the field.
0: And we will hear from a member of the House of Lords an established lawyer and fintech expert who has taken a new interest in construction and infrastructure.
1: But first, the tunnel itself.
2: My name's Joe Redmond. I am project agent for Story Contracting. I'm also the CRE, which is Contractors Responsible Engineer.
0: Meaning Joe is both assistant project manager and acts as stories engineer to the rail operator network rail he explains the situation at shubra
2: network rail have identified that there is a risk with the tunnel there is eight number shafts which were used during the construction back in the sort of early 1800s when when this was built they are not lined they are basically just bored out of the existing sort of bedrock Those shafts are not infilled, they have a timber cap which was, again, installed nearer the time and is not in a great condition at the present. Um, So on the land above, they've gone in, fenced off that area above to prevent anyone driving over, walking over and then obviously there is sort of the risk of people accessing that area and causing a collapse or the risk also to the railway.
1: Story's remit was to go in, locate and identify the shafts, survey them, and then fill them in to seal off the shafts and also make them structurally safe.
0: For Joe personally, the locating of the shafts was a key challenge. Because a lot of the records are
2: patchy, you know, this it, has been built so long ago that you know, NetRail have their, their records from as far back as they've got. And then there's people, other contractors have been in in the past and done investigations. So we've got eight shafts and a few of them we were pretty confident on where we knew where they were. There were signposts on the wall that said shaft uh, and then the designation.
1: But some of those weren't located where the shaft was.
2: They'd either been moved or installed incorrectly or, or whatever, but so yeah, we had a bit of a challenge at the start to try and locate some of the shafts. Some had been done by others and that was you know, easy enough to relocate them. But then others, I think there was four number shafts that we've, you know, we've struggled to locate originally. We did a few core holes in, did a lot of endoscope camera and uh, other camera surveys to make sure we were in the correct place. Yeah, that, that, that was challenging.
0: Another challenge was the time frame the team had to work in. Besides the railway running for most of the week, they began setting up the site compound in April 2020 And due to the impact of the coronavirus, they are now due to finish around April 2021. We only really could get in there on
2: these Saturday night possessions when obviously no trains are running. So that meant that a lot of the planning had to be done desktop based. And then we'd we'd go out on a Saturday night to to check things. Same throughout the design process as well. Uh, Yeah, so the access within the tunnel is really, really limited.
1: And once they had located the shafts, they were not uniform.
2: The shafts actually vary. So I think the largest one has a three meter diameter and the shortest one is I think about 1.8 meter diameter, but they kind of vary in depth. So the timber cap is slightly below ground level, but from the timber cap down to the sort of roof of the tunnel, that varies from around three or four meters at the end of the tunnel to around 10 or more
0: in the center. A large void to be left unlined for so long, which in previous generations back would require a lot of conventional cementitious grout to fill, pressing down on the old tunnel arch.
1: Joe explains the sequence of works that needed to be done.
0: Well, in the, the early phase, we go in there, we
2: mark out the location of these shafts. So we know the centre point of the shaft, we know the extent of it, and we know we have to mark out a five metre area either side. So. Once we've done that, we go in and we basically drill a load of holes on that five metre extent to either side of the tunnel.
0: The five metre zone to each side of the shafts is filled with a resin material to strengthen the tunnel lining. The tunnel is now quite venerable and... So there is a quite thin brick lining with a
2: void behind that, and then that's where the bedrock is. So because of the way the tunnel was constructed, the bedrock is not uniform. So in some areas your void between your brick and your bedrock could be five mil, and in other areas it could be five hundred millimeters. So yeah, so we're we're infilling that to strengthen that tunnel lining around that shaft, so that, that can take the load from the infilling.
0: The infilling of the shaft, which comes afterwards.
2: Once we have strengthened that lining, we then come in and we we basically install a four meter cap of that of that shaft. So from below. A three or four-meter section is infilled with the material. Once we've finished that, again, that's drilled in and pumped in from this resin. And then once we have completed that, we then come in above on the super estate, install an access route, and we infill the remainder of the shaft from above, basically using a directional a drilling equipment so that we aren't sat directly on top with the risk of that causing a collapse. We're sat off at a distance We've obviously um, set out where exactly we need to drill, drill on an angle and we infill from what we've done below up to that timber cap and that should less remove the risk of any collapse.
1: The works at the top of the shaft are being undertaken by...
2: I believe a uh, Camacho 205 unit but that, that could potentially change if, you know, if we have a better system we can find but yeah I think that is what we're looking to use uh, and again that'll be sort of self-propelled, that'll be we're installing an aluminium trackway road up from our entrance point up through the fields and up to each shaft. As we install that, we'll then drive the machine up there
0: and create a small working area at each shaft top. Within the grade two listed tunnel, they are using road rail vehicles. This is dual mode plant that can operate on the road with tyres or steel wheels on the rail track.
2: We've got um our own road rail uh, excavators that run on the track and they are pulling on trailers on these trailers we have especially modified um it's basically a shipping container which has been modified to so a roller shutter door on one side our subcontractors at geo bear have organized this shipping container to be modified and that contains everything it pumps the generators and all of the material so yes yeah, so it's a sort of one size fits all type system where everything's contained within this container. That gets pulled along, that gets loaded onto the trailer at the start of the shift uh, using a, a large telehandler.
0: The material contained within this equipment to fill the annular voids behind and support the tunnel lining and the base of each of the shafts was different than normal cementitious grout or concrete that would be injected.
2: So the, the, the worry with a traditional grout material is that it would spread. It, you know, it's tough to control how much it uh, spreads and runs into the surrounding brickwork. So you could, believe, you filled the section that you're planting and a lot of it's run out into other areas. Likewise, it could spill out into the rail ballast below. That contaminate the ballast. And obviously as that sets, it would it make issues for drainage within the tunnel. So obviously there was a lot of, of risk around that now.
1: The grout is also not very expensive. So they chose to use a geopolymer resin.
2: You would need a great quantity of it to do this in-filling. Now with the so the material we're using um, for the annulus in-filling, the gap between the brickwork and the bedrock, uh, that's GeoBear 2443 polymer resin. That material is developed and installed by GeoBear, our subcontractor. Yeah, so basically that's like a two-part mix. So what they do is they bring, you know, it, two separate drums for, for system and then as they are combining them within the pump that sets in around a 10-minute time frame. So there's a lot less risk of it running out into other areas because it sets so quickly. And in the shaft itself? That's a different material also provided by and installed by GeoBear also contractor. That is 2640. The first one meter of the shaft is filled with the same material that we're using to strengthen the lining. Uh, just because that provides sort of stronger uh, material, if you will. So, and then the the remaining three metres after that will be filled with the 2640. And then all the work from above is also using this 2640. That, That material is a lot lighter, so it has a lot lower density. And that means that it's basically a lot less load onto that shaft. But it is basically more of a filling material rather than a strengthening material. Yeah, so the density is greatly reduced, and that means we don't have as much load acting on that arch.
1: But what exactly is a geopolymer? Colin Eddy is an expert in underground construction.
3: My name is uh, Professor Colin Eddy. For around about under 40 years, uh, I worked for a large construction company in the UK, Morgan Sindel. Over the last four years, we're in my own independent consultancy business. Called CECL. I'm a Professor of Practice at the University of Warwick, where we're trying to develop centre of excellence in, in tunnelling and underground space.
1: Colin explains that geopolymers are a rigid closed cell polymers that can be used for a variety of applications. They have been used successfully in the residential sector for stabilising houses against subsidence for many years. But now, GeoBear is bringing this technology into the infrastructure sector, and awareness of the capabilities is growing. The material is stored in a suitable container and is activated by bringing multiple components together at the point of injection. Once activated, it produces a foam that expands to fill a space. Individual mixtures of geopolymer can be formulated in different ways by varying the components.
0: These materials are produced by chemical companies, with the bulk going towards manufacturing parts for cars or for furniture or for insulation materials.
1: Of the underlying technology, Colin adds.
3: We've got 70 years knowledge of its use and and 70 years of of testing and and data, And, and that's an underground application we're very confident that long-term durability and stability uh, can be maintained because the one thing that these materials don't like is ultraviolet light. So our components that have been manufactured 40, 50 years ago, uh, they, they can become embrittled and they can lose some of their properties. That's because of ultraviolet light.
0: But in a tunnelling application, underground, if ultraviolet light is a problem, you have bigger issues to deal with than a degrading material. Basically, geopolymers have found their dream home.
1: At the moment, Colin is currently engaged with educating people about the material, as industry standards have not yet caught up.
3: The use of geopolymers in infrastructure, there aren't any codes or standards. And in fact, that's one of the tasks that we've been working on recently, is to try to develop a set of standards which consultant engineers and contractors can refer to, to know, you know when it's appropriate to specify geopolymer for strengthening or for void filling or for lifting, uh, or even for things like liquefaction protection.
0: For Shugborough, there were two problems to solve. First, there were voids outside of the lining. And also, when it rained, a huge amount of water was coming into the tunnel.
3: The main advantage is if there's flowing water, the Well, first, the polymerization process can, can happen in the presence of water as easily as it can in, in free air, so not adversely affected by, by water. Because the polymerization process, effectively, the material starts to foam and expand. And as it does that, so when you're injecting it into the ground, it might have the viscosity of, um, well, it's not exactly water, it's... It, it, it's, I suppose similar to say a paint or something, you know that sort of viscosity. So it's quite easy to inject it into into the ground where you've got flowing water. If that was a cementitious material, that would just be flushed out of the, and it would just you know, it wouldn't do anything. But as it starts to polymerize, I mean, in a, in a way, you can you can kind of think think of it as you know it, it is massively changing its viscosity, so it doesn't get doesn't get flushed away. Um, and then once it starts to block, block the pores, and we've seen applications where this has successfully sealed uh, you know, around, you know, cobbles and boulders, where you know, it's not it's not sand and gravel; it's, it's cobbles and boulders that it's been able to work around because of the way it works.
1: This is where the chemistry gets interesting, because you can play with geopolymers to get different rates of chemical reactions. And so, different properties. It is a kind of foam, and you can control the rate of reaction, the viscosity, and ultimately the total lift pressure.
3: Of course, the material is—it's you know—it's a bit like a heat-seeking missile. It was as it expands, uh, it will seek out the voids and the cracks and the fissures. So it will—it sort of—it finds its own way to where it's required. But
0: an understanding of the material is needed. And this experience now exists within the industry. For Sugbra, this is where Colin comes in.
3: And I know from previous projects that I've been involved with many years ago, where we've used similar products. If you don't if you select your product carefully, I mean, we we actually accidentally failed a tunnel lining by injecting a similar type of product behind the tunnel lining, and and the lining uh, it developed a, a large bulge in it because we that stage we weren't you know we didn't we didn't understand the science it was just you know the product off the shelf and inject it behind a tunnel lining and that'll fix your problem you have to be a lot more intelligent in selecting these materials uh, because for sure you can pretty much break anything i mean these materials are incredibly strong
1: but predictable colin recalls a test where the foam lifted a train and the team were able to predict the rise to the millimeter
0: the chemistry is interesting and you can play with the various components to produce different properties. But the geopolymers also react based on the local
3: environment. So the, the materials react against their confinement so that the more they're confined, the less they would expand, the stronger they become. So again, really intelligent. So, so where you where you really need strength is, you know, generally you're gonna be a little bit deeper. And, um, Uh, and so you get a very dense, hard material, where you're just filling a void, uh, you get a free rise expansion of up to 35 times. So if,
0: for example, you put a litre of purely unpolymerised product on your office desk, totally unconfined, it would react and form a solid material of lower strength, but would expand in volume over 35 times and ruin your desk while if you inject an appropriately formulated material into a tighter space, it's much stronger. In the case of Sugborough, one type of geopolymer can be injected behind the tunnel lining and form a stronger seal, while the other kind can be allowed to expand more, filling a shaft with a low-density material, so less material is used, and which has the added benefit of applying less load to the tunnel lining below.
3: Really, the, the, the thing that I could help them with is, is uh, selecting an appropriate product uh, which would, which would uh, successfully fill the voids, successfully seal the leak, but would not overload the brick lining. And so we went for quite a, a low-power material.
1: Although not as low power as a shaft-filling material.
0: In Colin's time, the tunnelling industry has seen a lot of change, but usually the steps are just that: incremental improvements.
3: There've been some impressive improvements in the, in the tunnelling world in, in the last few decades, but in many respects, they're, they're quite minor steps. They're certainly not evolution. It's it's um, uh, it, it's you know minor, steps forward. I think the use of new materials. And, and geobars, geopolymers—they've you know, been in use for 30 years, uh, and they've been in use, for, you know, on, on tens of thousands of projects around the world. They're not exactly new; they're pretty new to infrastructure. So, actually, just taking an intelligent look at what these materials can do, and seeing the potential applications, and also recognizing when they're not right—you've got to, you know, they're, they're, you know, as we've said several times. You know, it's not the right solution every time. You know, I'm extremely confident that uh, the infrastructure market in 10 or 20 years' time will look very different to the one we have now. Um, One of the issues with with Portland cement, of course, is that uh, anybody that's ever done a sustainability check and a CO2 audit um, don't have to go past the Portland cement. Um, You know, everything else is pretty much irrelevant. Portland cement is the the killer, Uh, and and if we're serious about reducing CO2, then um, uh, we have to look at smarter ways of doing things.
0: Colin says that they worked with an independent company to look at the sustainability credentials – energy consumption, CO2 and other parameters – in a displacement control project on a tunnel in the UK and saw that as much as 60 times more cementitious material might be needed compared to the expansive geopolymers. He was impressed.
3: So you can imagine, as a starting point, the amount of material consumption is very different. So I, I think using materials more intelligently...
1: It is not just geotechnical experts who have begun thinking about geopolymers. The gradual adoption of the new technology by the infrastructure industry has attracted attention from more unusual territories.
4: Well, as the prime minister has made clear in the national infrastructure strategy, it's all about build, build, build. One of the ways of building ourselves and really getting out of the malaise of COVID obviously is going to be a challenge of job creation.
0: This is Lord Anthony Sinjin, the 22nd Baron Sinjin of Bletso, who sat in the House of Lords as a crossbencher for 42 years.
4: But the UK has been talking for a long time about upgrading its infrastructure. We're talking about high-speed rail link, we've been talking about improving the bridges, national infrastructure, but the government's infrastructure is not just about recovery and rebuilding the economy.
0: It's also about adapting to climate change, but also, as the government says, levelling up our infrastructure.
4: That's not from you, that is upgrading and maintaining national infrastructure.
0: He has joined the Technical Advisory Board of GeoBear. It's true that maintaining public infrastructure is not as exciting to political figures as new builds such as Crossrail or High Speed 2. But Anthony says he has a personal vendetta against poorly maintained infrastructure and stalled works.
4: One of the concerns I've always had has been traffic disruption. Uh, and it's been a bugbear of mine living in London In fact, I drive a scooter because I just get so frustrated by perpetually being kept in traffic jams.
0: A frustration which has led to a broader interest in infrastructure and maintenance extending to rail tunnels in Staffordshire and beyond. As Anthony sees it, there are a couple of issues related to our infrastructure.
4: One is the general maintenance of national infrastructure. Obviously we have devolution in the UK which has been posed to Tony Blair and devolved parliament has brought responsibility to local authorities and local councils and taken this out of central government. So to a large degree, the upgrading and maintenance of critical infrastructure in the UK is a decision of local and regional government rather than national government. That said, key to the maintenance of an orderly infrastructure is regular upgrading of roads, railway lines and bridges, and the technology now The data that we have, and obviously we're living in the world of artificial intelligence and disruptive technology and drones. We clearly are in a situation where local authorities are able to far better assess the need to upgrade and maintain critical national infrastructure than they were in the past.
1: Another is the green economy.
4: And as I mentioned to you earlier on, we have the National Infrastructure Strategy, which has recently been launched by government. And one of the key components of that strategy is the decarbonizing the economy and adapting to climate change. And we have, of course, COP26 coming next year. So central to the bidding process for all national infrastructure is the precondition that all contractors have to show their willingness, their commitment, and most importantly, their abilities to comply with strict environmental standards, which is key.
0: And Anthony, with his background in financial technology, sees infrastructure through an outsider's lens, a much more connected industry.
4: I I think that it's very important that in addressing national infrastructure, addressing not just the new build, but also the maintenance of existing infrastructure, that there is an element of knowledge transfer between all the various engineering components. Knowledge transfer because clearly the world is moving not just into a digital revolution, but in many ways to a technology infrastructure revolution. And that knowledge transfer requires uh, a much more of a, how would I say, a culture of all component parts talking to each other.
0: Smaller companies working together.
4: The UK is made up of a large percentage of small and medium-sized enterprises. And I think what we need to be seeing is a level playing field. Clearly you've got to show strength of balance sheet, clearly you've got to show track record in terms of management, but what I'd like to be seeing is us all pooling our resources, pooling our talents, pooling the technology solutions for a sustainable long-term infrastructure here in the United Kingdom.
0: Infrastructure has always been a conservative field But it needs to embrace the technological revolution or risk missing out on emerging benefits.
4: We did a report on the extent to which various sectors of the economy would embrace artificial intelligence and disruptive technology. So the 20 sectors that we looked at, the engineering sector, came 18th. So I, I think you make a very pertinent point that we're looking at traditional building techniques. And what I'm trying to say is that whereas FinTech, prop PropTech, MedTech have embraced new technology, have embraced innovation, have embraced artificial intelligence, we have the benefit of better data, we have the better technology. And now I believe is a time when the engineering sector ought to be coming forward. And that's why I answered my previous question by saying there needs to be a better knowledge transfer to embrace this opportunity. By embracing technology, by embracing change, long-term infrastructure solutions can be far better achieved rather than being something spoken about but not done.
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Ryan Owen, script editing by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own abandoned shaft is Rory Harris. Special thanks to GeoBear, Story Contracting and CECL. Thanks for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and LinkedIn.